Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 is one of the most significant chapters in the book of Genesis. And the noted theologian James Montgomery Boyce, the late James Montgomery Boyce, calls verse 6 of Genesis 15 the most important verse in the Bible. Uh, That verse reads like this, And Abram believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him, Abram, as righteousness. It's quoted by Paul in Romans 4, in Galatians 3, and James uses it in James chapter 2. It's a very significant verse. We spent some time on this verse last week. It's the centerpiece of Paul's argument of justification by faith and faith alone in Christ alone in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. Abram, we, we noted last time too that Abram was justified before the giving of the Mosaic Law. Long before, the centuries before the giving of the Mosaic Law, Abram was also justified before he was circumcised. So the Jews of Paul's day had it wrong. And that's why Paul uses Abram. He says, think back to the way Abram was justified, and you'll see it wasn't by keeping the law. It wasn't by circumcision. It was by faith. Genesis 15.6, in my view, is the, is the Acts 16.31 of the Old Testament. When a Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul, what do I need to do to be saved? The Apostle answered, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In, in fact, sometimes we wonder if that, if that particular verse is, is speaking of eternal salvation. It most certainly is. If you remember the context of that verse, in the context of the verse in Acts 16.31, uh, there's a Philippian jailer who had been in physical danger, but he's no longer in physical danger. He's completely rescued from that. So, so the, the Philippian jailer is not asking, what do I need to do to be rescued from a position of physical danger to one of physical safety? The rescue he's speaking of is one from eternal condemnation to eternal life. Our scripture reading this morning, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish, never perish, but have everlasting life. You know, once once you receive this everlasting life, once you're justified before God, you you know you can never get unjustified. That's an interesting thing. I I love what Charles Ryrie said one time. He said, if eternal life could be lost, we're calling it the wrong thing. (laughs) It's something, but it's not eternal if it could be lost. You know, God loved you so much, and if you happen to be here this morning without Christ, without, without hope, without eternal life, I want you to know that Jesus died for you. And the same way, and you can receive eternal life the same way Abram did in the Old Testament, the same way that Philippian jailer did in the New Testament, the same way that John 3.16 speaks of, and that simple faith in Jesus Christ, for God so loved the world, and that includes you. And you may think, well, I'm not that lovely. But you know what? You may not be that lovely to family, friends, or your neighbors, but you are that lovely to God. God loved you so much. In spite of your own sinfulness, my sinfulness, your sinfulness, our sinfulness, God still loves us so much that he sent what was most precious to him to die in our place. And we can receive that free gift. It's a gift. He paid for the whole thing. We can't even give the tip. You know, when you go out to a restaurant and somebody very graciously buys your lunch, sometimes you pull out the wall and say, hey, let me get the tip for you. God says, no, you can't even get the tip with this. I've already paid all of it. Now it's up to you just to receive it. And the way we receive it is by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So I hope we're all on the same page there. 
this morning because there is no one who ever has or ever will work their way to heaven. You'll spend all this lifetime, and if there were a thousand others, which they're not, you'd spend those as well. So neither circumcision nor keeping the Mosaic law or any other moral code had anything to do with Abram's justification before God. Nothing of works. Strictly faith. One of the most challenging questions in the book of Genesis is why Moses waits until Genesis 15:6 to tell us of, of Abram's justification. The way the New American Standard translates it, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness, really kind of adds to the confusion. It really doesn't help. Ordinarily, I love the New American Standard. It's the one that I preach from, if, if you're wondering. There, it's, it's a very, very fine translation. In my, my view, it's one of the best. But here's one of those places where I, I prefer New King James, and I think it's NIV a little bit better. Because of that word then, that adds to the, to the confusion, because we know from Hebrews 11.8 that Abram had exercised faith years earlier when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he had demonstrated that he had exercised faith many times between that point and the point that we get to Genesis Chapter 15, verse 6. The promises had already been given to Abraham by this time. By this time, Abraham had already had many spiritual victories and a few spiritual bumps in the road as well. But Abraham was justified before God long before the events of Genesis 15, 6. So it is one of those thorny questions that Old Testament scholars grapple with as to why Moses waits till now to tell us about Abraham's justification. The grammatical construction in the Hebrew language is really not what we would expect here if it was a sequential event. This is not what Hebrew grammarians call a vav consecutive, meaning this happened and then this happened and then this happened. No, that's not the way it is. This is more of a parenthetical statement. That's why some of your Bibles either leave the first word out, <coughs> the word now, or, or, or rather the word then. Some insert the word now, some insert the word and, some leave it out altogether. It's almost better... If, if they would have put parentheses around it and say, Abram, now Abram had believed in the Lord, and he reckoned, God reckoned it to him for righteousness. But why wait till here? I think there is a reason why Moses waits until this point. Walter Kaiser, one of the leading Old Testament scholars of, of our day, tells us or speculates that Moses holds off on telling us of Abram's justification because most of the emphasis so far in these Abrahamic narratives has been on this, the land part of the covenant. At least in, in the late part of chapter 12, into verse, uh, chapter 13, and through verse 14, the, the emphasis, not, not the, in totality, but the emphasis has been on the land aspect, the promise of the land in the covenant. And now in Genesis chapter 15, at least in the first five verses, the emphasis has shifted back to the seed portion of the covenant. And Kaiser believes that now the subject has shifted back to the seed, Moses takes, takes the opportunity to remind us, to remind us that, that Abram had trusted Yahweh in the past, and in the past it had been credited to him for righteousness. So, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, one of the most important verses in the Bible, according to some, the single most important verse in the Bible. Genesis 15, 6 is a reminder of Abram's previous faith. But the point at which we are reminded is significant in the overall flow of Moses' outline of Genesis. Abram believed or trusted Yahweh. 
And that faith was accounted to him or credited to him as righteousness. So at, at the point that Abraham trusted God, Abram was declared righteous. That's what we call justification in theological terms. Now, justification is one of those $100 theological words that can get confusing sometimes. In fact, in the first, in the first few years of the 1900s, there was a very popular definition for justification that went around many church circles that went something like this. Justification means that God looks at, looks at me just as though I had never sinned. That was a nice try, and it's, and it's a simplification of some other definitions, but it's not quite accurate. He doesn't look at you just as though you had never sinned, because that's a subtraction. You see, when God forgives us, he wipes away the eternal penalty of sin. But when God justifies us, he adds something to us. Just, justification is not a subtraction of our sins. It's not even a subtraction of the penalty of sin. Justification is an addition. And it's a wonderful addition. It's a beautiful addition. And an exciting addition. It's one of the many, many things that happen to us at the moment of salvation. I can't remember exactly the number, but I think Lewis Ferry Chafer counted up either 32 or 34 things that happen to the believer at the moment they exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Other people have counted 36, some 40, some over 100. It just depends on how you divide them out. But one of the wonderful things that happens to us at the moment that we exercise faith in Jesus Christ is God says, you're righteous. Now, Abram, when he experiences, he didn't become experientially righteous. Abram was declared to be righteous. It's as if God had his righteousness, rolled it up and said, okay, now, Abram, you are righteous, and handed it to him, almost like he handed it, we use the illustration of eternal life that way as well. He gives it to you as a gift. So we're declared righteous, and this is one of the things that makes us acceptable before God, because our righteousness before God, according to the prophet Isaiah, is just like a filthy rag. And that filthy rag that's described there is more than just one you use to clean the dishes with. That's a really, really filthy rag that Isaiah is speaking of. And that's the way God looks at our righteousnesses. So we can't go to heaven, we can't approach God and say, well, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've done for you. No. No matter how good we, we attempt to be, salvation is by grace through faith apart from works. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God not of works, so that no one should boast. You know, there's no one that's going to be standing in heaven with their, with their hands in their armpit, their fingers in their armpit like this, saying, you know, I was just a little bit better than them, that's why I'm here. No, everybody's there with the same footing, because we trusted Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And Abram did as well. So when the Bible says that we're declared righteous, and Paul uses the term justified, Moses used the term, he was, was reckoned to him as righteous. It means that we have been given God's righteousness. And that's an addition, not a subtraction. So while I sympathize with that idea that it's just as though we've never sinned, that's not really quite accurate theolo theologically. I'll tell you something else that's not quite accurate theologically, and sometimes we hear it in, in hymns and or, or music, contemporary music sometimes, and, and it's a nice effort, but it's not technically correct to say after salvation we're innocent. No, not, not really. We've been forgiven, we've been declared righteous, but we're, we're not really innocent. You, you see, that would be like someone who had been uh, tried and convicted of murder, coming before the judge and, 
and the judge pronouncing the sentence, and then the governor come down later and, and say, you know what, I'm, I don't want to execute that person. We're going to pardon them. Now, that pardoned person couldn't then go out and stand before the news cameras and say, well, no, I'm innocent. No, no, you, you weren't innocent. You have been guilty. You were guilty, and you have been convicted by a jury of your peers. You were sentenced to a certain a punishment by the judge, but you've been pardoned. Now, that's different from being innocent. So justification doesn't mean that you're innocent. It means that you've been given this gift of God's righteousness, and he looks at you differently. He looks at you not because it's as though you've never sinned. He looks at you through his own righteousness and the blood of Christ that was shed for you, not your own good works. I hope that we see that. We, we touched on that at the last portion of our time together last week, but, but I'm afraid that the clock was running down, so I had to cover that fairly quickly. I wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page before we moved on. Because that's such a significant concept. That is Christianity, by the way. We talked about things that were negotiable and not negotiable last week. That's a non-negotiable. That we've been justified by grace through faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. If you'll recall, we said last week that Genesis chapter 15 as a whole is an exposition of the confirmation of the promises given to Abram with an emphasis with an emphasis on the fact that this, these promises that were given to Abram are indeed unconditional. Unconditional. Now, the final portion of the chapter reads like this. We covered verses 1 through 6 last week, and I'd ask you, I hope that you did. I've already talked to some of you, and I got really good response. I asked you to read through this chapter several times, if you could, so you could see how it flowed. Now, we, unfortunately, we had to break it into two parts for purposes of, of this study, but but it's not really broken up into two parts in terms of its overall purpose. In verse 7, the, the, the chapter continues, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And he said, this is Abram speaking back, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two and laid each half, each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now, this is a pretty bloody ritual, but follow along with me. It's very, very meaningful. In verse 11, and the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram, Abram drove them away. Now, in verse 12, now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, the Perizzite, and Rephidim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. It's an interesting chapter. It's a very interesting ritual that, that Abram and God go through. And we want to make sure that we understand that because 
as critical as verse 6 is to the understanding of the outworking of God's progressive revelation when it comes to our salvation. The rest of the chapter is equally important. That's why chapter 15 is so critical. The rest of the chapter is equally important in understanding the way that God's plan unfolds in the outworking of human history. This section is absolutely critical for our understanding of what happens with the rest of human history. What happens with regard to the church? What happens in the future with regard to Israel? It answers the question, does Israel have a future, or is Israel finished? It answers the question, do the promises that were given to Israel, to Abram, are they now morphed into the church? Are you and I the recipients of these promises? This is a very critical chapter theologically. It's one of these chapters that we have to... We have to cover, we have to cover carefully. In some circles, it may not be that, that exciting. Actually, to me, it is, especially when you see what this ritual signifies. I think you'll find it enormously exciting. But it's one of these foundational chapters. If we're going to be solid in our theology, we need a, we need a solid foundation. Oh, in so much of Christianity today, we're, we're an inch deep and a mile wide, to, to use Os Guinness's phrase. And we don't want to be an inch deep and a mile wide. I like to be a mile deep and a mile wide. There, there's no reason. We don't need to be an inch wide and a mile deep either. We need to be wide and deep. Meaning there's no reason why we shouldn't take our theology seriously. And this is one of those serious passages. So I'm so happy that you're here today. I really am. You know, I don't tell you that as often as I should. But I'm glad to see you. I'm glad that you're here today. And I'm glad you're here today for this particular lesson. Because this lesson is absolutely critical. In verse 7, God reminds Abram that it was he himself who called Abram out of Ur the Chaldees with the implication that because it was God himself that took him to the place that he's in right now, called him to this very spot, the implication is that Abram should have a continuing confidence based upon his previous experience with God. Because God's the one that called him, Abram should have a confidence at this particular moment. And you know what? We should too. Some, some in, in Christianity today express the idea that, that perhaps we should begin journaling. And you know what? That may not be a bad idea. And the reason that it may not be a bad idea is because at least I do. I'll, we're not going to have confession time. This, this, we would all get distracted. But I, I'll at least say this. Oftentimes, as time goes by... I'll remember all the negative things that come up in my life, and, I've, and I am very, very quick to forget the times that God rescued my sorry tale out of a big mess. And I suspect that you're that way too. We remember, we remember the difficulties, and we don't necessarily remember the blessings. I don't know why it is that we're that way. But we tend to do that. And I think if it's true with me, it may be true with you too. I know I'm different and a little bit strange, but I, but I suspect <laughs> that it might be true of you too. So that's why some... Some recommend that we keep a journal. And, maybe, yeah, put down the difficult days, but also mention the times that God rescued us and saved us because when we get to the difficult times, to go and remind ourselves of how God saved us in this situation. Boy, he, he pulled me out of that situation. Wow, do you remember when that happened? And you remember what God did? Isn't he great? Maybe we can handle these difficult situations a little better. Now, Abram's in a bit of at least what he perceives as a difficult situation right now. He's been given all these promises, but he's still sitting there in the middle of a bunch of Canaanites that the Bible's going to call Amorites here with regard to the entirety of the group. 
He's been given a bunch of promises. Yeah, he's become a, a fairly significant tribal leader by this point. But in, in terms of the overall scope of global politics, he's not a global leader in, in any way right now. He's been promised that he would be a great nation. He doesn't have a son or a daughter or anybody right now, any offspring at all. And, and he's been promised this land, and he's living in the middle of a bunch of Canaanites. It certainly seems to belong to them, not him. So I can understand. I, 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 don't, I don't excuse it. But I can understand why Abram's have a little bit of a problem here. And I also understand equally as much why God encourages him by reminding him something that happened in the past. And that's when God spoke to him in the past. I, what he said, I don't know. The Bible never records. How it came to him, I don't know. The Bible doesn't really get specific with that. But we know that God talked to him. So God identifies himself. I'm the Lord. I'm Yahweh who brought you out of Ur the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. Did you forget that, my friend, Abram? Did you forget it? Well, Abram answers back to God, and, and I don't believe that this is a sin. God, he's not doubting the promises so much, but he's saying, how, how can I know this? It's been a long time, Father. It's been a long time. Lord, could you just give me just, just a little bit of clarification here, just something, just something so that I might know? Now, I don't think he's pulling a Gideon here. Uh, I don't think that's it, but, but I do think that He's asking for a little bit of clarification. Now we have this incredible ritual that, that, God, that God commands of Abram. And what happened, let me explain this ritual because I think if you understand this, this passage is, is just going to come alive for you. In the ancient times, when two kings wanted to make a treaty or a covenant with one another, they would do something like Moses has presented here. So this, this was cultural in the day that it was written. What they would do is they would, they would get certain animals. The larger animals they would cut in two. The kings would bring large animals they would cut in two. In this case, you have a heifer or goats. You, you cut them in two, and they would place them on either side of a pathway. Now, the birds were so small, so the birds would not be cut in half. So what we have in Genesis chapter 15 is very cultural of that day. Moses is writing within the culture of his day. And this is, what, this is the ritual that God uses. Then what would happen, you, you can imagine there would be blood all over the place. And it was a very, um, a very striking ritual. In fact, I would imagine some people wouldn't even want to attend a ritual like that. We have violence in the movies now, violence on television that makes us turn our heads away. Uh, a lot of times they had violence in front of them. This was, wasn't this one TV. There, there was violence that had been done, and there was blood all over the place. And the kings would join arm in arm. And then they would walk, they would make a treaty, and then they would walk through the bloody pieces. And they would be saying, in essence, may it happen to both of us what has happened to these animals if we don't keep this treaty. Okay? Now, that, that's historical. That's a cultural situation. Now, God has brought that into Genesis 15, and he's got Abram doing the same thing that these two kings would have done. So may, may we be this way if we don't follow this Treaty. Now, we're going to get back to that in just a moment. But that's, that's the setting. That's what's happening when we get to uh, verses 9 through 11. Now, in verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, great darkness fell upon him. Well, this is, and terror fell upon him as well. Now, there's, there's two things that terrorized Abram here. First of all, he had set up this bloody, these bloody carcasses at God's command, and then the vultures came down and attempted to interrupt God's plan. And, and that should, surely should have terror, terror, uh, terrified him just a bit. 
the, the vultures had, had, had potentially interrupted the ritual that was about to take place. So this was, a, this was something that probably would have terrified him. But Abram is about to have another encounter with the holy God of the universe. And when we come into it, a personal encounter with the holy God of the universe, of the universe then it, it can be a terrifying thing in a good way. You know, there's a way to be terrified in a bad way. All these horror films that come out and, and try to scare us to death, like Jack Nicholson and, and uh, that one where he's, he uh, sticks his head through the door and says, here's Johnny. You know, that was a scary film. That's, a, that's one kind of terror, one kind of fear. But there's another kind of fear when we approach a holy God. And I think that's what's happening to him here in verse, uh, verse 12. Now, the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. In the verse 13, and, and God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they shall be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation. This is Egypt, of course. I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Now that's already happened by the time Moses writes this. That's history by the time Moses writes this. Now the next part is not history. It's, it's going to happen in the future. Verse 15 and as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Some translations say a ripe old age. I kind of like that one even a little better. A ripe old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. One, one bit of a side note. Sometimes you hear, especially Old Testament scholars, debate about how long a generation was. This is, a, this is one of those passages where those who hold that a generation was 100 years, this is one of the passages that they point to, because it's four generations but 400 years. Um, different people d disagree on that, but it, but it would appear as though, at least from this passage, a generation might be 100 years, not the, the standard 40 that sometimes people, uh, people look at. Now, there are, are three things, three main things that we can take from those verses. The first is, that the fulfillment of the promises is sure. It is certain. The second, before these promises are fulfilled, there will be a period of enslavement. Enslavement and opposition, a 400-year period. Now that's, even for people who live like Abram, be 175 years old, that's a long time. 400 years is a long time to be oppressed. So the promises will be fulfilled for sure, but there's a delay that's going to come with regard to the, to the fulfillment of the promises. And finally, Abram will not personally witness the fulfillment of the land covenant, anyway, during his lifetime, but his descendants will inherit all that has been promised. Now, there's a tricky little phrase here that I want to explain to you before we go any further, and that's the phrase in, in verse 15, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It'll help you in understanding this passage if, if you realize that the way Moses is using the term Amorite here, he's using it for the entirety of the people that were occupying the land of Canaan. And, but, and when he says the iniquity of the Amorite is not complete, this, this is a phrase that points to the justice of God, to the fairness of God. You see, when Abram comes into the picture, God could have, I suppose, but in God's mind, he, he doesn't because he doesn't think it would be totally fair. He doesn't immediately give the land. He doesn't expel these people from the land, and I say, Abram, you have it all. He says, the iniquity of the Amorite, or could I use the term the Canaanite, is not yet completed, meaning that, that they're going to get worse and worse and worse over the next 400 years. You know, by the time that we get to this point, I don't want to confuse you, but, but 400 years have already passed now by the time that Moses writes this. By the time we get to this point, 
the sin of the Amorite, the sin of the Canaanites had become complete. Oh boy, had it become complete. This, these people that were occupying the land by the time Moses writes, by the time of the Exodus, these were some of the most evil people that, that we have a record of on the planet. Uh, these were people that were, they were sacrificing their children to the fires of Molech. These, these were bad, bad people. They were evil people. And so there, there had to be a 400-year waiting period where God finally says, okay, you know what, that's it. That's maximum evil. You're out. And the, the Amorites then would have no complaint whatsoever before God to say, you treated us unfairly. No, God said, listen, I gave you a 400-year waiting period so you could get these things right, and you didn't do it. That's what that little phrase for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete means. The promises are sure. But first, there will be a period of slavery and oppression, 400 years, four generations. And finally, Abram will not personally witness the fulfillment of the land covenant during his lifetime, but his descendants will inherit the land, all the land has been promised. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. As Scripture unfolds, we, we learn more about salvation. We, we certainly learn more about the Trinity. Um, and one of the things that we learn more about as Scripture unfolds is what happens after we leave this life. It would appear as though in the Old Testament, certainly at the time of the writing of Genesis, the Jews knew of an afterlife. They knew it would be a positive afterlife, but they don't know nearly what we know right now. I know, I know there are books that are out on the market right now that are almost 400 pages in length that talk about what heaven's going to be like. But I've got to tell you, and I, and I hope that they're motivating to you, and I hope that it's an encouragement to you, but that's probably about 350 pages too many. Because the Bible just, even, even now, even though we have the entirety of the revelation of Scripture, we don't, we don't have all of our curiosities satisfied. Oh, boy, I, I wish we did. But, but I do know some things. I do know that when we leave this body, we'll be in the presence of our Lord. I know that we're going to leave this body of corruption behind. I know that we're never going to sin again. I know that eventually, I think this is after the judgment seat of Christ, but eventually we'll be in a place of no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. The old things have passed away. I know we're going to worship forever, continually worship forever, and we're going to enjoy it. It will, it will never be drudgery. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. C.S. Lewis has a little piece they call The Weight of Glory, in which, which he speculates that we were made for heaven. And, and the very things that are just right outside of our grasp, we, we, can, we can look at them, we have these thoughts that pass through our minds, and, but, if, but if we were to ever grasp it, it wouldn't really ever, it would slip right through our fingers. We're going to get to heaven and we're going to say, that's what I was longing for the whole time. That's it. You know, sometimes I wonder, you probably have too, what the geography of heaven's going to be like. If it's going to be an ocean with waves crashing against the shore and maybe a beach house up there, or is it going to be in a mountain setting with a, with a mountain lake, a clear, crisp, cool mountain lake, and maybe a little waterfall coming out of the lake? I don't know. But I'll tell you what, I get up in the mountains and there's just something that I long for up there. I don't know if Lewis was right or not, but I suspect if he was right, I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to say, that's what I've been hoping for all my life. Not just with regard to geography, but with regard to everything that's there. I don't know exactly what heaven's going to be like, but I know it's going to be incredible. It is going to be incredibly good. Now, Abram didn't know a whole lot about He didn't even know that much, I don't think, about heaven. But he knew that it was going to be a positive thing. And 
he also knew that he was going to go to heaven exactly when the Lord called him there. That's why I kind of prefer that translation, ripe old age, although that's not, maybe not the best one. But it describes it. Abram's not going to be picked while he's still green. He's going to be fully ripe when he's picked. And it's going to be the perfect time. You know, God has a perfect time in mind for you and me too. He's going to, he's going to pick us at exactly the right time. And for some people, that's what we would think is early in life. For some people, it's late in life. But it's not early or late. It's at exactly the right time. And you can count on God to do that for you too. It's the very same thing that he promised Abram. And it will be 175 years for Abram. Now, in the, in the culture and in the world and in the healthcare system that we have today, I don't know if I want to live 175 years. Maybe you do. I don't really. And I think that's why God, God actually, God doesn't give us a choice. And the reason he doesn't, because we would all probably choose a lot longer than what we should stay. But we'll all, we'll all leave it at the, the perfect time. And Abram is going to live at, to exactly the age that God wants him to be. And then God's going to take him home at the perfect time. Now, one of the things about the ancient world, too, that you need to know from a cultural perspective, it was, it was the responsibility of a son to give a father an appropriate burial at that point. It's, a, it's the responsibility of a son to give a father an appropriate burial. Well, you don't really even have to read between the lines here. I'm not really in favor of doing too much of that when it comes to biblical study. There's nothing between the lines here. You shall be buried at a good old age. There is an implication here that he's going to have somebody, some heir, to bury him. And see, that, that's, that's just a little bit of a hint that, yes, I'm going to do what I told you to do. If, I'm gonna, if you're going to be buried and, and things are going to go well there, then somebody's going to be around to do it. And we find out later in this text it's going to be Isaac, and actually Ishmael helps as well. Now, in verse 17, this is a very critical verse for the understanding of the Abrahamic covenant being unconditional. And when it came about that the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces. Now, this is representative of God. Abram's not passing between the pieces. This is a theophany, as it's called in, in, uh, in theological terms. This is an, an expression of God himself. And as, as Abram watches, God alone passes through these pieces. This theophany passes through the pieces. What is happening here is God is obligating himself to a certain course of action. Now, in order to, to totally appreciate this, we, we need to have a, at least a, a bit of an understanding of the difference between a conditional covenant, and this is, I know this is heavy theology and we're almost finished, but hang in there with me, between a conditional covenant and an unconditional covenant. The Mosaic Law is an example of a very conditional covenant. This is what God says, if, if you obey me, then I'm going to bless you. And actually what happened, the Jews did not obey him, so they didn't get the blessing that, that, that they should have gotten at that time. That's a conditional covenant. If you do this, then I will do this. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is not that way. Now, there was a bit of a conditional nature in the beginning, if you leave where the Chaldees, but he's already done that. Now, God, God at this point says, I'm going to obligate myself to this certain course of action. And you're not really a part of it after this, Abram. This is an unconditional covenant. In the same way, the Davidic covenant is an unconditional covenant. God, God still had the line of the Messiah come through David in spite of all David's failures. If it was conditional, then there'd be, we, we, we wouldn't be called Jesus the son of David. He'd be called something else. So verse 17 indicates that this is an unconditional covenant. God himself appears as a smoking oven and a flaming torch. Two elements that I believe point to God's incredible holiness. 
God alone passes through the pieces. So that makes this a unilateral, unconditional covenant. And as the writer of the book of Hebrews put it, for when God made the promise to Abram, to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now we don't do a lot of swearing today, at least not in this sense. They did a lot of swearing in the past, and what they would do, that was the way they made a promise. I swear by. That's why when Jesus comes around, he says, listen, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Don't be real quick to do all this swearing, because sometimes it's going to get you in trouble. And if you were to swear by God, and then not fulfill that, that is one of the ways that we take the Lord's name in vain. Did you know that? Sometimes we have a little bit of a misunderstanding about that. If I say, listen, I promise... Uh, based on my relationship with God, that this or that is the true thing. And that if it's not a true thing, then that's taking the Lord's name in vain. It's, it's using it in an appropriate way. There's more to it than that, but that's certainly a part of it. So, when God made the promise to Abram, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 13 says. So, this is an unconditional, unilateral covenant that takes place between God and Abram, but God is the one doing the promising here. Very, very significant. On that day, in verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, there is, there is some discussion, and if you have a study Bible, perhaps the note says that. Read it later. Just listen to, what I, just listen to me now, and, and you can research it. But but there's some discussion about what the river of Egypt is. Most commonly, it was, it was thought to be the Nile River. That's, a, that's certainly a possibility. Modern Hebrew scholarship tends to think it's, it's a smaller body of water, water called the, wad, the Wadi el-Arish, the Wadi el-Arish, which is a little bit closer to Canaan than the, than the Nile River is. We know where the Euphrates River is, but the point here is that the Israelites have never occupied the entirety of what is described here. They came close in Solomon's day, but they have never occupied the entirety of it. They're not even close to the entirety of it. So the occupation at the point in time that I speak to you today, the total occupation of this land is something that is yet future. It will happen in the future. God's not finished with Israel. And there are many social and cultural and even political ramifications to that statement. But God is not finished with Israel. There is a future for her. Israel has not been morphed into the church. And the church has not become the heir of the promises that were given to Israel. What God promises to one group, he's going to give to that group. If if I was to do this today, if, if I was to say, I'm going to give each of you on this half of the room, in this half of the room, a $100 bill. I'm going to give each of you a $100 bill. And you say, well, what do I have to do for it? And I'm going to say, you don't have to do anything. This is fiction. It's not going to happen. <laughs> so don't get upset over here. But if, but if I was to say, I'm going to give each of you a $100 bill. And I don't, I, don't, I don't put any conditions to it whatsoever. And then I'm going to, say, I'm going to do it when, the, when our time here together today is finished. And then the time together is finished, and I, I get to thinking, you know what? There's a couple people on this side over here that weren't paying as good of attention as they should have. I won't point out anybody right now, but there's a couple people over here that were paying intense attention. So I'm, I come to you and I say, hey, listen, you know what? I'm not going to give you that $100 bill. I'm going to give it to everybody over here. Amen. 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 All right. <laughs> now, you would be justified in saying, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
why aren't you going to give us a $100 bill? And I say, because a couple of people over here were not paying attention. And you say, well, you didn't say anything about paying attention when you, when you made that promise. Best I could heard it, there was no conditions attached to it at all. And I said, well, I know that. I know that. But, but listen, don't feel bad. I'm still giving away the $100 bill. You say, I'm still giving it away. I'm just not giving it to you. I'm going to give it to them over here. So I have fulfilled my promise, have I not? Well, the people over here will be very happy about it, but the people over here are going to say, not really you haven't fulfilled the promise because you promised to give it to me. And now you're giving, it, you're giving it to somebody. I almost see your point, but you're giving it to them, not to me. I don't really understand why because, you know, you didn't put any conditions to it. So it doesn't seem quite right to me. Yes, you're giving it away, but you're not giving it to the person to whom it had been promised. Now, that's, that is a, a very, very brief way of describing what sometimes happens in theology. There's a thing called replacement theology out there that says that the church has replaced Israel as a recipient of the promise. And that would be fine and dandy if there had been a condition placed upon it. If I had said, listen, I'm going to give you a $100 bill provided everybody pays attention. Then two people don't pay attention, so I said, well, everybody didn't pay attention, so I'm going to give it to somebody else. Then there could be no complaint from this side of the aisle. But if I don't attach a condition to it, and I don't give it to whom it was promised, then my integrity could be challenged. And, and again, I know hardcore systematic theologians may cringe a little bit at my illustration. It's just an illustration. No illustration is perfect. But I hope that this helps you to see if God is going to maintain his integrity... He's got to give these promises to the one that, that was the recipient of the promise. He can't change recipients in midstream, as the phrase goes. So there is a future for Israel. I don't know when this is going to be fulfilled. Some people, on, especially on television, try to, to, to say it's soon or it's far away. Or, I, I don't know. I wish I did. I'd do a whole sermon series on it. And, and excites you and me too, but I just don't know. Maybe tomorrow. My good friend Robert Leitner, who you've met many times, has a plaque on his desk that says, perhaps today. We need to live as though the rapture was coming today, the church age was going to end, and all these events of the Revelation 6 through 19 in the book of Daniel are about to unfold, but we just simply don't know. Well, I do know this. What God has promised to Abram will be fulfilled in Abram's descendants. To be sure, the church shares shares in the blessings that are given to Abram, and especially in the sense that the Messiah came through Abram. We all share in that. We appreciate it very much. But the specific promises will be fulfilled in the one to whom they've been given. Now, God's made you promises, too. Our illustration was, was reflecting the Abrahamic promises, but he's made you promises, too. And I've got to tell you, one of the things we can take from this passage as we close is that God is perfectly capable of fulfilling the promises that he's made to you. And our God, the God of the Bible, has integrity. And what he's promised, he's going to fulfill. He's not going to promise you eternal life if you'll but trust his son. And then turn around later, you get to the great white throne of the judgment seat of Christ and say, no, I decided it was by grace through faith plus works. And you don't add up, so you're not getting in. You know, you do not have to fear that. Because we worship a God that has integrity a God who's fair, and a God who is just, and a God who is righteous. What God promises, he will deliver. And we can all take comfort in that. 
Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this great chapter, this, this extremely theological chapter, but it's such a chapter of application as well. Father, we love you, and we thank you that you love us. Father, I thank you that you're a God of integrity, and that, that I can count on you, and that which you've promised me, you will fulfill. Maybe not in the timing that I have planned out, but in your own perfect timing. I thank you for that. And I thank you, Father, for our so great salvation that we enjoy through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith alone in Christ alone. Thank you for that. Help us, Father, to, to serve you well this week. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.